Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all of their support with these podcasts. Welcome back to part two of my chat with Pete Davis, who is a consultant in emergency and retrieval medicine at the Queen Elizabeth in Glasgow and with the Defence Medical Services. Now, in part one, we'd looked at, I guess, the evolution of this concept that came to be known as damage control resuscitation. And we got to the point where we looked at the history of how resuscitation had evolved over the last maybe 100 years and got really to the point where we've got red teams or pre-hospital physician-led teams delivering red blood cells and pre-hospital anaesthesia at the roadside. And I'm interested in what you see as the next evolutions are in this paradigm. Well, we accept that in hemostatic resuscitation, certainly in the emergency department, we're aiming for a ratio of one to one to one of packed red cells to plasma. Usually in the in-hospital environment, that's fresh frozen plasma, i.e. thawed out frozen plasma and platelets. So it's red cells to plasma to platelets in a one to one to one ratio. Well, we can't really, for various logistical reasons, administer platelets pre-hospital yet, but we can still certainly try for a one-to-one ratio of red cells to plasma pre-hospital. Not all services, not all red teams are currently carrying plasma, but I think that has to be the, the ultimate aim in the not-too-distant future. And there is a growing body of underpinning scientific evidence to support that one-to-one ratio of red cells to plasma and pre-hospital. And of course, this has to be supported by the accepted and established adjunct of tranexamic acid being administered intravenously again shortly after or as close to the point of wounding a point of injury as possible and that's certainly part of our protocol operating with the emergency medical retrieval service and with other red teams that i'm aware of throughout the uk and we can further refine and optimize that pre-hospital transfusion by considering other factors such as calcium intravenous administration of calcium during the transit phase and we know that during transfusion patients will become relatively hypocalcemic so again correcting that just helps with the overall management of deranged physiology and deranged hemostasis. The other thing that I've started to notice within that pre-hospital environment is an increasing use of roadside diagnostics and I guess the most commonly seen one is point-of-care ultrasound. I wonder how you see that tying into damage control station in the pre-hospital environment. I think the pre-hospital use of -of point-of-care diagnostics such as ultrasound is awesome and really augments our ability to provide timely care pre-hospital. I can think of of a case of my own from very recently where we were tasked to a case of penetrating trauma and as it happened this was a deliberate self-harm where the the male um, had deliberately stabbed himself in the chest during effectively an episode of paranoid psychosis. One of our advanced practitioners in critical care was on scene very rapidly, probably some five or ten minutes before we were able to arrive. 
And this individual was very skilled in point of care ultrasound. And he was able to confirm to me by radio as we were en route, patients had cardiac tamponade. So knowing the accuracy with which this individual wields the ultrasound probe, what that enabled the team to do was to stand up the appropriate response at the receiving hospital, which was my own hospital, Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow, which is the major trauma centre designate for when the trauma network goes live in Scotland in August of this year. So even before we'd arrived on scene, we knew that this patient was in cardiac tamponade and was going to require an appropriate surgical thoracotomy response when he arrived in hospital. That's a, a real example of the benefit of optimising and making sure that we can move as rapidly as possible with some of these patients who really are, again, on the cusp of life. The ultrasound useful also for making a field diagnosis of potential tension pneumothorax or even just pneumothorax, and obviously just sometimes for even um, sighting intravenous lines in the field where access is difficult in the shock patients. It's a phenomenal bit of kit. And certainly in a skilled pair of hands, it's a great diagnostic tool. I was at a conference a while back where there was somebody chatting about developing transorbital intracranial pressure monitoring delivered at the roadside, which is probably not exactly mainstream at the moment, but it certainly has the potential to be a game changer in terms of managing our severely head-injured patients. Yeah, I can remember an American U.S. Navy emergency physician colleague back in 2008 in Afghanistan who was advocating the use of an ultrasound for exactly that purpose as a surrogate for monitoring intracranial pressure and making judgment calls on that in the forward environment where you know intensive per unit techniques such as transcranial pressure bolts are clearly not available. So, you know, that, that again is a potential exciting development for the future. Now, you mentioned major trauma centres. It's a term that we are becoming increasingly comfortable with. And as we're recording this, the network in Scotland is in the process of going live. But I guess the MTC is part of that wider systemic approach to trauma management. Yeah, so I think right at the beginning, we said that the concept of damage control and resuscitation is a continuum from the point of injury, the point of wounding in the field through pre-hospital care, through to reception in the emergency department, and then onwards to the operating room, the intensive care units. And the ability for each of the key players along that route, along that continuum, to sort of work hand in glove with each other will optimise results for the patient and result in greater success. And what we're talking about, the aim, the real aim for major trauma centres is to get people back into the economy again, where instead of, of somebody with the sequelae of major injury being you know, permanently disabled, permanently off work and potentially dependent on benefits um, to enable uh, him or her to get back to you know, as highly a functioning position as possible and back within the economy is the ultimate aim of the major trauma network. Absolutely. And it's trying to reduce that or shift the emphasis away from just the raw mortality data to look at perhaps morbidity with a bit more of a tight focus. That, for our patients, is the thing that that could really change lives. It's really interesting to see how you see these future technologies integrating with, with where we are already in terms of things that we've chatted about on this podcast before. So, Reboa and things like ECPR. There's no doubt that there's potential for 
both of the techniques that you've mentioned to be, again, game changers in the future. But I personally believe that place hasn't quite been defined just yet. And perhaps importantly, there are adaptations within the system along that continuum of curve that, that I described, which will need to be nailed down. Um, I think before these horizon techniques become truly successful. So if we take Reboa, for instance, or resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, conceptually, intuitively, it's something that should work, shouldn't it? I mean, you, you'll appreciate this, David, as a budding vascular surgeon. So instead, in the shock patients of having to, to open the abdomen, in order to compress the aorta or to open the chest to, to compress the, the descending aorta, to cross clamp it, which is a, a benchmark or a staple of the trauma surgeon. Um, you can pass a balloon catheter in through the femoral artery, inflate it in the aorta and achieve the same result. Well, clearly, it's potentially much, much less invasive than the, the big hit to an already injured patient of having to perform either a thoracotomy or a laparotomy in order to compress or cross clamp the aorta. So it should work. But the key thing is, once you start by inserting and inflating the balloon with a Reboa catheter, the clock is ticking from that point. The more high the position that you place that Reboa catheter, in other words, if you've got bleeding from the territory in the abdomen, which is supplied by arteries that come off quite close to the diaphragm, then you've got to inflate that balloon to achieve the effect very high. And you've really only got 30 minutes with true rubber, if you like, before you need to be deflating that balloon. Otherwise, the hit to the other organs south below that balloon occlusion, the hit to those organs is likely to be very destructive. So the hit to the kidneys and the hit to the other parts of the gut, uh, the hit to the lower limbs, potentially resulting in amputation, it's going to be quite considerable. So if we establish that we're sort of 15 or 20 minutes out on a shout and we've inserted a balloon catheter very high up in so-called zone one, we've really only got 30 minutes and then it takes 15 minutes to move with that patient to the receiving emergency department. That emergency department and the assembled team consisting of the intensivist, the vascular surgeon, the trauma surgeon, whatever, They've got to be able to start to work intensively on that patient the moment the patient crosses the threshold. And if they're not, then the, the perceived value of that procedure, the insertion of the bone catheter, I think, is lost. So it becomes a, a whole system issue. It's not just the skill set of the red team in being able to insert the Reboa catheter near to point of wounding and then transfer the patient. It's the whole system within the receiving major trauma center has to be adapted and set up in order to receive that patient with an inflated Reboa balloon catheter and immediately perform the next steps in order to surgically resuscitate that patient. And that's, that's a huge mindset change and challenge and maybe flies in the face of some of how NHS hospitals are set up and structured in terms of the orderly flow of patients from the pre-hospital world through the ambulance entrance into perhaps a resuscitation, the inevitable change of kits before engaging colleagues from all over the hospital. It's certainly a, almost a quantum leap in terms of, of how business is done within the emergency department. 
Yeah, but it shouldn't make us too cynical or sceptical to the point at which we dismiss this as a potential game-changing procedure for the future. And I think on a personal level, that's where I sit with it. So I accept that intuitively, conceptually, it works. And in fact, there are successful cases that are in the literature, both from civil practice and also from military practice. So we know that the the technique can work. What we have to accept, I think, is where we are with the major trauma networks in the UK. And as they become more established, that people working within them become more comfortable with the, the immediacy of action that's required if you are part of the surgical team or the vascular surgical team working in an MTC. As people become more comfortable with that, as we go on, as the systems evolve, then it will be easier for them to pick up the baton and run with it in terms of adapting their practices and their services to accommodate these techniques. I can personally foresee them coming in in the future. I just don't believe we're quite there yet. And the same goes for ECPR. It's interesting just to understand how you see these future technologies integrating with where we are already. I guess to round up, I just want to touch on how you see the role of basics and basics responders and how we can start that damage control resuscitation process closer to the point of injury. So we accept that basics responders are a very, very valuable addition to the scene, the pre-hospital incident. And whether it's a physician responder, a paramedic or a nurse responder, it may be that the skill set of the responder actually augments or is even superior to the other professional responders on scene. So for instance, you might have at the scene of a road crash, a technician professional ambulance crew and the basics responder has additional skills and additional underpinning scientific knowledge and he or she are able to provide real clinical leadership at that incident. The other thing again is that where it's perhaps unclear um, the basics responder may recognize the severe physiological and metabolic derangement of a patient and be able to stand up a red team response at that point to augment the the level of care that's available at the incident site. But in terms of what you can do practically, well, again, it comes back to the CABC paradigm of controlling catastrophic or ongoing hemorrhage whilst concurrently managing airway breathing and circulation. So splinting limbs, pulling mangled limbs out to length, for instance, particularly in the case of an open fracture, an open thigh fracture, an open leg fracture, may help to provide local tamponade and prevent ongoing hemorrhage. The use of tourniquet on a mangled extremity may again be very appropriate and prevent ongoing hemorrhage. And obtaining intravenous access to facilitate further advanced resuscitation is clearly vital. That's brilliant, Pete. And it puts us into the mindset of that continuum of care from the point of injury right through sort of surgical interventions, intensive care, all the way out towards, I guess, ultimately the sort of rehab side of things. And I'm certainly a zealot for the role that basics responders have within that care pathway, particularly in rural Scotland. Now, Pete, with all of our presenters, we've been asking folks to give three top 
tips for basic responders as a takeaway core messages. What would your suggestions be in terms of damage control resuscitation? Okay, for my tips, for number one, I'd say remember that the classic ABC algorithm for resuscitation has morphed into CABC and that C stands for control of catastrophic or ongoing hemorrhage. And that really has to be immediate and concurrent with managing the airway, breathing and circulation. For number two, I'd say nail your IV lines. If a red team's on its way to an incident, but you're there already, you might be the individual that's got the one and only chance to get a really good IV cannula in situ, which is going to facilitate further resuscitation. But don't only place it, place it and make sure that it's not under any circumstances going to be pulled out because it may just not be quite as easy to get another one in. And there are certain techniques that are available to us. We can actually convert a cannula which you've placed, for instance, in the cubital fossa. We, we can put a thing called a solding wire into it, remove the catheter over the wire, and then thread a much larger cannula in over the top of that wire using the wire as a guide um, through which we can administer a major transfusion of blood and blood products. So that's number two. And for number three... I'd suggest that you can extend the, the classic ABCDE algorithm even further by the addition of the letter F, where F stands for forward planning. So immediately you're activated and you're en route, start thinking ahead, start thinking and planning ahead. It may be that information that you receive en route is such that you're able to think about standing up other services already or that when you arrive on scene, you quickly recognise the severe derangement of physiology, that the patient's on the cusp of life, and you immediately decide that you know, activating a red team or a HEMS team uh, is appropriate. So yeah, A, B, C, D, E, and F, where F is for forward planning. That's absolutely fantastic, Pete. Thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing both your passion, some of the history behind the evolution of the concept of damage control resuscitation and where we are in terms of resuscitation today, your huge expertise, and also looking forward at some of the, the future evolutions that we might be seeing over the next few years becoming more and more mainstream. Thanks very much indeed, Dave. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I wish you good luck with the remainder of this series of podcasts as well. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.